Welcome to another episode of Practically Theologians. This is Josh. Uh, I'm all alone here. My wife and children are gone. It's early in the morning, and I thought, why not put out an episode? <clears throat> I'm sorry for not putting out more episodes. It's just something I haven't been able to prioritize. Um, and I haven't been able to... Yeah, I could put together interviews and stuff if I put a little work into it. It's just a matter of wanting to put the work into it. I... I do this podcast in part to be helpful to others, but actually mainly it's helpful to me in terms of organizing my thoughts. I enjoy interacting too with guys from seminary or whoever who I don't get to talk to a lot. So bouncing ideas off one another is also something I enjoy. So those are the that's actually the main reason I do the podcast is for that interaction or that, uh, that uh, opportunity to put my thoughts together in a coherent man a coherent way so uh, the secondary reason is that it's hopefully helpful to others <laughs> so don't be offended it's not that i don't care about you but i'm not talking to you face to face i care about those that i can see i don't even know if anybody's listening to this so just so you know um yeah i'm not making money off of this so it's not a huge priority like money is the only thing i care about i guess but whatever see this is the problem now. I'm going to get into rambling here if I'm not careful. I'm going to try my best to be concise. This is probably the third time I've tried to put this episode together, and every time I find myself rambling, I go off on rabbit trails easily. So sorry, especially when I'm not talking to someone else. <clears throat> so bear with me. So this series I thought I would do because I could do it by myself, and I thought it might be helpful is why I am a, why I am a, and recently over the past year, I've talked to, it's funny, five people have approached me to talk about pedobaptism, who are looking into it either because they're curious because they've never heard of it, or because they are wrestling through the topic, actually, of the five, four are actually personally wrestling with the um, topic because they have children and they're members of a church or they're thinking about becoming members of a church that says it's biblical to baptize children into church membership or accept children as members of the church, I should say. <clears throat> and so the, this is the first uh, topic in the series, why I am a paedobaptist. So let me explain explain the terms. There are two terms, credo-baptist or credo, uh, that, that term it means believer's baptism, so only believers should be baptized. Pedobaptism, or infant baptism, pedo means infant or child, um, should, they, they teach that children can be baptized also. And I am a pedobaptist. I started out as a credo-baptist. So when I talk on this podcast, I'm going to use the term Baptist for credo-baptist and Presbyterian for pedobaptist, just so it's not too confusing. That's what I'm doing. Um... Uh, yeah, I started out as a Baptist. I made my way to pedo-baptism, and I thought maybe people haven't heard of this as because I believe the Bible is true, right? I grew up in a community church, uh, and I assumed that people that baptized infants were either liberals who denied the Bible was true or Roman Catholics who thought that baptism saved their children or something like that. I don't, I don't know exactly what I thought Roman Catholics did believe about baptism, but that's, I think, what I assumed. And uh, so I was pretty ignorant of a position existing in the Christian church that believes 
So the Protestant Christian church that believes the Bible is true, I didn't know that they still baptize babies, right? Let me put this out there, by the way. So when I say that I'm a paedo-baptist, I also, I also am a cradle-baptist too. So the paedo-baptists also believe that believers profess, who profess faith should be baptized into the church. It's not that we say they shouldn't, so just uh, just to put that out there. <clears throat> so just so uh, I don't think people would be confused on that, but just in case. It's not like we say only babies should be baptized. <laughs> no, nah, it just kind of highlights the difference between the two uh, views. Anyway, I grew up in I – didn't, I didn't know that the uh, Reformed creeds and confessions existed when I grew up. So the Protestant Reformation produced a lot of, of helpful material you should look into – like the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechism that go along with it, or the Heidelberg Catechism, or in the Belgic Confession and the Canons of Dort, or even if you're a Reformed Baptist, the uh, uh, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, right? That's based on, in large part, the same uh, language. It uses the same language as the Westminster Confession of Faith, but it's ba- and it's based on that. But it does change things in terms of the covenant, baptism, um, and some of the language is, is different in there. Intentionally different. <clears throat> anyway, so look into those things. And then also there's the early creeds of the church, like you may have heard of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Athanasius, uh, what is it, the Athanasius Creed. And there's other creeds that I forget at the moment that dealt with heresies in the early church or just put together a basic summary of what Christians believe. You should look into those things. I was ignorant of church history. But, um, and so this, that's why I thought that only, uh, that people that baptize babies weren't really part of the Protestant, conservative, Bible-believing church. Part of the reason I thought it might be helpful to put the podcast out there is because maybe some of you are there at, at that spot. You're just not aware of this view. <clears throat> so I grew up in that I, I I grew up, for example, in a church Where I thought that dispensational Premillennial, pre-tribulational eschatology Was kind of an orthodox Christian stance on eschatology And that anything different Was probably part of liberal Or something theology I grew up thinking There's no really way To come down on one side or the other As far as Calvinism and Arminianism The Bible kind of taught both um, so I kind of grew up in that that way of thinking. Now, there may have been people in my life who tried to teach me, <laughs> tried to teach me, and maybe I just didn't pick up on it. So to be fair to those people, uh, maybe I'm just a dummy. That's why I didn't pick up on it. But as far as the teaching of the church, I went to for sure. For sure, they did not expose me to different viewpoints from the pulpit or from from the, the the Sunday school or whatever. So anyway, I just wasn't aware. And I think it's good to be aware of what our brothers and sisters in different churches believe. <clears throat> um, I, hope, I hope it would make us more charitable to engage with, with beliefs that are grounded deeply in, in a view of Scripture that says – that are grounded deeply in Scripture – with a view of scripture that says the Bible is God's word and God speaks truth and we should read God's word to find truth. I I think Christians who have a robust robust 
Baptist theology uh, are doing as best as they can <clears throat> to make sense of God's word and to live it out. And I respect that. And I, uh, I didn't respect that earlier in my life the way I do now. I, I think that's part of what happens maybe when you get older is you just become exposed exposed to viewpoints that are based on an, an on a real uh, and um, scholarly and thoughtful and even charitable approach to trying to make sense of the Bible and live it out. And at the end of the day, between Baptists and Presbyterians, there's not that much difference. So it's not like this divides Christians from one another in terms of Christian fellowship in general. Obviously, it divides Christians from one another in terms of church membership. It's hard to be a, a Presbyterian with children and going to a Baptist church because the Baptist church, of course, would want the children to be baptized again uh, on profession of faith if they've been, if they're pres. Like I'm saying, if you've already had your children baptized, I guess if you haven't and you're going to a Baptist church, <clears throat> they're not going to baptize your children until they make a profession of faith, which is too bad, but on the one hand, because I obviously think it's biblical to accept children as members of the church. Uh, but also, it's not like they would have to be rebaptized. But if, like, I, I have children who are baptized as Presbyterians, so for me, it'd be very difficult to become a member of a Baptist church that requires baptism upon profession of faith, because then my children have to be rebaptized. And I don't believe that that's biblical. It's not a salvation issue, though, so it's not one of those core essentials that divides Christians from apostates. Uh, and I want to make that clear. There's really not a lot of difference even practically in how Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians treat their children at home or in the church. Um, so, yeah, just to put that out there. <clears throat> so it's not like this is a huge a huge topic in one sense. On the other hand, it is, it is a big deal. It deals with baptism, and baptism is a big deal. So... So let's let's go here. So how did I become a Pado Baptist? Growing up from the community church, I kind of accidentally left it. <laughs> God, God moved us out of it into a church. Ugh, excuse me. Like I said early in the morning, I got to stretch here. Oh man. Whew. So he moved us to a church uh, that taught, well, that held to the west. Well. All right, it's a long story. This church held to the Westminster Confession of Faith when we became members, right? That's what they, they asked us. Do we have a problem with anything in the Westminster Confession? On their website, it said they, they, that they held to the Westminster Confession. Uh, Sermon Audio said that. In fact, it may still say that. I don't know. And then, and then the church flipped. The pastor flipped. And then it turned out the church didn't actually hold to any confession. So they could just flip on baptism. And then we made a decision to go to a Presbyterian church because I did not flip on baptism. So it's a long story, <clears throat> but we but we started at this church that and they believed that children should be considered members of the church and therefore should be baptized. I never, I had never encountered that. So we started going to this church because, essentially, because the worship was reverent and the uh, we heard. The gospel being preached in a way that I'd never heard before. The community church we used to go to, it was basically, it seemed, 
in hindsight, it seems to me like it was basically do better, try harder. Here are some principles for the Christian life that you should be doing. <clears throat> do them. And then the gospel was kind of presented like the basic gospel, which is good enough, but not if you're preaching, you should probably not just stick to the basic gospel. You should be able to preach preach the richness of scripture to the people of God. But anyway, that, that basic gospel message was kind of sandwiched. Not sandwiched. was kind of in at the ending prayer slash altar call. And the sermon was all about just how to live. Just do better, try harder. So when we went to this Reformed church, I'm telling you this because <clears throat> as I came out of the community church, I probably not I would not have been open to churches that baptize babies. But as I went to this church before I realized what they taught, because I was very ignorant of a lot of things. I didn't know what Reformed meant. I didn't know what Calvinism was. I had started to look into that, but um, I didn't know this church baptized babies until after I had started going there. But, but you see, I was more open to the idea because what I heard in the preaching was Jesus. And I, was, I actually heard about the Trinity, the work of the Trinity in the preaching. I heard the gospel in the preaching. And it was so rich and I grew a lot <clears throat> that, that when, I, when I gained the knowledge that the church thought it was biblical to baptize babies, it wasn't shocking to me. I, I had, the church had earned my trust because I was hearing about the gospel in the preaching for the very first, first time really in that rich way. It was rich. That's the way to describe it, I guess. It was rich. It was a rich experience. I was growing a lot at that time. I was learning a lot of things. I don't know. So I studied baptism once I began to see that this, what the Westminster Confession was, what it taught regarding baptism. <clears throat> and that's kind of what started me on this movement toward becoming a paedo-baptist, is encountering the question of what is baptism. See, I grew up thinking baptism, it was a, and this is, common i know a lot of people still i i the out of the five people i've talked to uh i think two of them would have or still do hold to this idea that baptism is a it's a profession of faith and it's an act of obedience to god those are the two things i thought it was and i didn't realize that it was not those two things <clears throat> that it actually wasn't necessary it wasn't obedience to God it was in it was a sign from God so it was from God to man not from man to God I didn't realize it wasn't an act of obedience on my part uh, but that it was I mean yeah okay let me put it this it is an act of obedience let me I just want to be clear I'm not saying it's not an act of obedience the church is commanded to baptize so obviously in a way it's an act of obedience but Primarily, it's a sign from God to his people of his work. And so it's always connected to preaching the gospel. It's always connected to the gospel. It's a visible gospel. But I came into the church looking into this. Um, I don't know why. I just forgot where I was. You know what? I'm going to go to my notes. <laughs> uh, so I came into this Pato Baptist church. I started looking into baptism. Oh, yeah, that's where I was going. That was my view of baptism. Profession of faith, act of obedience. I didn't know 
what it signified. <clears throat> so as I studied it, I began real. I began to see that it um, signified things. It did. It didn't. It wasn't just. An, it meant something. Uh, for example, like the Westminster Catechism says, it's it's a it's a sign and a seal of union with Christ, of forgiveness of sin, regeneration, of adoption, of resurrection unto eternal life, and uh, it's a way of bringing uh, marking people out as members of the church. Okay, marking people out as members of the church. So let me repeat that. It's a sign and a seal of. So it's not doing these things. I don't know if I made that clear. Let me just say this. If you don't know this, Presbyterians don't believe that baptism in and of itself does anything. So it doesn't wash away sin in and of itself. It doesn't forgive sins. It, it doesn't make you a member of the church. But it does show you visibly it's a sign of it shows you visibly something that you should recall from god's word that it's a sign of what god says about bringing you into union with christ so this show this is a sign that shows you to look to union with christ to look to forgiveness of sins the washing away of sins to look to regeneration of the spirit <clears throat> um, to look to your adoption and to your being raised with christ into a new way of life, into everlasting life, let lasting life, lasting life, everlasting life, <laughs> everlasting life, and uh, and it's a it's a mark of being a member of the church. It's a seal. God has placed a seal upon you. This water uh, marks you out as being the Lord's. Okay, so it doesn't do anything to you. I guess except for the seal, it does mark you. It does mark you. So, but it doesn't change you in terms of salvation um, in and of itself. It does. It's it's like preaching. The the baptism and the Lord's supper are kind of like preaching. It's a they're tangible, visible um, signs that God gives us that that kind of are connected always to the gospel, which is word. <clears throat> so that so to be clear, baptism doesn't do anything in and of itself, um, and I don't know. I, I wanted to be clear on that because maybe people don't realize that. I, like, I guess what a Reformed Baptist believes baptism does. I guess I wouldn't be that far from a Reformed Baptist in what I believe baptism does. Right. Anyway, just to be clear on that. So I, as I looked into baptism, I discovered. Early on, this is what convinced me as I looked at what circumcision meant and what baptism meant. And I discovered they meant the same things. They lined up. Uh, if you make a list of what the meanings of circumcision and baptism were, they lined up pretty well. And Paul even talks in Colossians 2. Um, he connects baptism and circumcision in, in verses 11 and 12. In him you were also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven given us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. <clears throat> anyway, so I know that Baptists say, nah, Paul's not connecting circumcision and baptism. He's showing there's a difference there. But anyway, I, I think he's connecting the two. And as I study this, just what what is circumcision and what is baptism? Like I said, I thought baptism was just a profession of faith and an act of obedience. I didn't know that it meant the the things that I mentioned that it means. Um, <laughs> I didn't know it had that meaning, and, I, and so I thought it was something I did, not something that God gave. If that makes sense. So the the direction of the two, like I thought, baptism was from man toward God, not from God toward man. Um, anyway, and I, and I do believe that because there's a, there's kind of a reciprocal relationship, like if God tells you about the gospel, that demands from you a response. So the same thing with baptism, if God gives to you this sign of baptism, it demands from you a response. Uh, God's word never returns without doing something. God always works by his word, <clears throat> whether that means he works uh, in an act of of discipline or even judgment, uh, or whether that means he works in a way that changes you and causes you to obey or to be to be sanctified further. So, um, yeah. Any, uh, so anyway, baptism. Yeah. So I believed it was. So I, now I I saw. Wow, baptism actually doesn't mean what I thought it meant, and. And so, of course, so of course, so if you're a Baptist and you think it's a profession of faith and an act of obedience, then of course babies shouldn't be baptized because they can't even talk. Uh, how are they supposed to? How are they supposed to profess faith and and tell you that they're doing an act of obedience or want to do an act of obedience if they can't even talk? Right. So if you're a Baptist, of course it makes no sense to baptize babies. Uh, if you believe that 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 those those things are true, but in looking into it, I I would challenge that. I don't think that the Bible says that baptism is an act of obedience, nor does it say that it's a profession of faith. I think a profession of faith is a profession of faith. Um, I think baptism is an act of obedience from the church, on the, on the part of the church, but not on the part of the individual. Uh, uh, so, eh, it is on the part of the individual. I want to be fair. You know, you could refuse to be baptized, but then the church has a responsibility to discipline you. And disciplining doesn't mean a bad thing. I mean, the church has a responsibility to bring you along in your faith. That's discipline. So just to be clear, I'm not saying discipline is bad, like negative, like like spanking or something. It's Discipline is also... Here, walk as I walk. Come follow me. Here's the right way to do it. <clears throat> so anyway, that's what I mean. Anyway, I discovered this link between circumcision and baptism and the meanings. And of course, having abandoned the idea that baptism is a profession of faith um, and my act of obedience toward God, my personal act of obedience toward God, um, and then seeing a link between circumcision and baptism. So first, first the viewpoint that only those who could profess faith should can be baptized, obviously. If you remove that from the equation, okay. 
Well, people who can be baptized don't have to profess faith necessarily to be baptized <clears throat> because it's not a profession of faith. Um, and by the way, I, don't be confused by what I just said. I do believe that those who are outside of the church who are um, able to uh, able to accept responsibility for their own um, lives, so are old enough to do that, who are new Christians coming into the church, yeah, they should they should be, you know, profess faith and be baptized. <laughs> so, what, where is that going with this? Oh, so early. It's like, what? It's ridiculous. Four. I got up at 4.30, so it's, what is it now? Five something? Anyway, sorry. Wow, I'm tripping myself up here. I changed my view. Hey, I saw this, this idea that, like, of course, circumcision, God told um, Abraham, right, circumcise all those who were under his authority in his household, and and all Israelites were to be male, obviously. Uh, Israelites were to be circumcised as a, as a mark of, of the sign of the covenant that God made with Israel. And, um, and those who were not circumcised were to be tossed out. They weren't part of Israel. Uh, so circumcision was definitely a mark of who was in the people of God, who was in God's church. You know, this, ex this is a difference between my earlier thinking of what is the church and what is Israel. You know, that's what I just said. A lot of people might not accept the idea that, the, that Israel was the church in the Old Testament, that, that kind of idea. I mean, Stephen, when he was martyred, he called Israel the church in the wilderness, the ecclesia in the wilderness. Uh, you know, the word church, some people even have a problem with using the word church, but whatever. Um, but ecclesia, <clears throat> or the, what do they call it, the called out ones, or the house, the, yeah, the called out ones, I think it is, uh, ek, out, I don't know, I forget. Uh, that, that term is used in the New Testament, talking about Israel in the Old Testament, and it's used in the New Testament, talking about the new, the people of God in the New Testament, so just throwing that out there. Um, but anyway, so when I say that Israel, it marks people out as members of God's people in the Old Testament, circumcision did, and seeing a link between circumcision and baptism, I saw, oh, baptism marks people out as part of the people of God in the New Testament, or after Jesus' work, right? Circumcision pointed forward to Jesus' work. It was a bloody physical sign applied in anticipation of a male who would rise again on the eighth day. Baptism, I mean, <laughs> circumcision was to be performed on the eighth day. Why? Why the eighth day? Well, yeah, this is tangential. Here I go on a rabbit trail, right? The eighth day, though. You should look into the eighth day. It's kind of cool. Seven days of the old creation. The day of rest was the seventh day, <clears throat> right? Well, the eighth day is the first day or Sunday or the Lord's day. The first day of a new creation, right? Of the, If you think about it, the eighth day is the day after the last day of the old creation. And Jesus was raised on the eighth day, on Sunday. He was circumcised on the eighth day, right? On the eighth day of after he was born, so not on Sunday necessarily, but on the eighth day. That Why the eighth day? Why did God say eight days? 
you might say, well, for health, because coincidentally, that's when blah, 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 nerves aren't formed and it's, it's better, the clotting, blah, 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 blah. Well, okay, God probably made people so that that was the case because he wanted to do it on the eighth day <laughs> because the eighth day is an important idea. Um, yeah, so anyway, we're, we're <laughs> rabbit trail galore, right? Look into the eighth day, though. It's cool. Jesus is raised as the first fruits of a new creation on the first day of the new creation. And we look back now in baptism on that day where in circumcision, you looked forward to that. So circumcision was done on the eighth day, looking forward to Jesus rising again. See, he was cut off and he rose in newness of life on the eighth day in resurrection life. And so people looked forward to that happening. They should have known Jesus was rise again on the day after the Saturday, on the after the seventh day Sabbath, Jesus would rise again. They should have known that based on the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus would have known that based on the Old Testament. We should know that based on the Old Testament. We should be able to put together a theology of the Lord's Day, perhaps, uh, or the change of the day of the Sabbath because of our knowledge of what the Old Testament teaches, perhaps. I don't, I don't know that I have a really robust theology of the Lord's Day, so maybe I should work on that. I could be wrong about the eighth day. Let me put that out there, but I don't think I am. I think it's pretty cool. Um, so anyway, <laughs> circumcision pointed forward, looking for a male. So only males were circumcised in the Old Covenant, the Old, the old Testament. Um, looking for a cutting off, um, which Jesus was cut off for us. He was, he is our circumcision. Like Paul says in Colossians in yeah. Um, in him, you were circumcised. Right? Uh, so anyway, uh, it pointed forward to the eighth day or the Sunday or the day of resurrection. So it pointed forward to these things. It pointed forward to blood being shed. Um, so pointed forward to something, pointing forward, I mean, it kind of left a question mark, like who is this person that will come and fulfill these things? What, why are we doing this? We're looking forward to offspring. So an offspring of Abraham would come, an offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman would come, right? So circumcision pointed forward and, and, and made people anticipate this. Now baptism, now that Jesus came and did those things and we know here he is. Here is the Messiah. Baptism is a non-bloody sign that points back at the work of Christ. <clears throat> so it's um, applied to males and females because no longer are we anticipating a male child. It's, it's no longer a bloody sign because we're not any longer anticipating a bloody sacrifice for our sins, a cutting off, um, etc., so those things have been fulfilled. So no longer is the sign bloody and physical. It's uh, it's non-bloody and it's even temporary. So it doesn't stay upon us physically. Water evaporates off of us. Okay. I think I got into that enough. So I've changed my view. There you go. My children were baptized into the mem membership of the church. So look, the question isn't really about who should be baptized in in as simple as that it's I, mean, I like to think of it more like who should be member who should be members of the church only believers those who profess belief in Jesus 
or believers and their children, households. Okay, so I changed my view from only believers being considered members of the church to households being considered members of the church. And so if households are members of the, of the church, all those in the household should be marked out by a sign of one of the things that baptism does is it marks you out as being members of God's church. I grew, I didn't grow up thinking that, by the way. I was baptized into, I was baptized without being baptized into the church. I never became a member of the church that I was baptized at, which is interesting. There was no connection between baptism and church membership when I grew up. Um, but I began to see, yeah, circumcision was a marking out as one of the people of God and baptism too. You, you see that in the book of Acts easily. It's a, it's a, it's marks you out as being one of God's people. Jesus commands it, go and make disciples. By the way, I like to, I like to throw this out in fun, baptizing and teaching, right? How do you make disciples? Well, first you baptize them. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's just, yeah, yeah. It's not really a theological point. It's just a joke. <clears throat> first you baptize, then you teach, right? That's how you make disciples. So you baptize your children and you teach them. <laughs> so that's a joke now. All right. Anyway. Changed my view. But then, like I said, the church flipped. And I kind of was given the opportunity to um, expand my view of baptism and kind of deal, wrestle with some good challenges to paedo-baptism, Presbyterian view of baptism. So the pastor flipped on baptism. So did the elders. They became believers, Baptists, or cradle-baptists in the church we went to originally. And after talking with the pastor, he gave me books to read by Reformed Baptists, which the Reformed Baptists have a very robust, uh, well-worked-out theologically view of baptism, <clears throat> and I'd never encountered that. So it was kind of a challenge to paedo-baptism or Presbyterian, the Presbyterian view of baptism that was actually engaging. It was actually engaging at a, at a level, like a base level. So the basics, where... Where did the differences arise from was not something I'd been able to find in kind of a more, oh, I don't want to say shallow. That's a, that doesn't seem like a respectful way to put it. So, but I can't think of a better way to put it. It is shallow. Uh, a shallow Baptist view of baptism is maybe based more on proof texts and not based on a a robust, systematic theology of baptism, if that makes sense. And I apologize if that's offensive, but that's just to make it easy to understand, that's what I'm going to say. So I really only engaged with a shallow view of baptism. I had never really been exposed. I didn't know that Reformed Baptists had such a robust theology of baptism. In fact, I had Reformed Baptist friends who didn't know the Reformed Baptist, kind of the 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 basis of why there's a difference and it's based on a different view of the covenant, I discovered. So, like, I think I mentioned that circumcision was a sign of the covenant, right? Well, in, and this is where I started to look at covenant theology more in depth. Uh, I had engaged with it. I just kind of accepted it, that there was one view of covenant theology that all Reformed believe. I thought Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians thought the same thing as far as the covenants in the Old Testament and then the New Covenant, uh, <clears throat> and the Covenant of Grace and the Covenant of Works, I thought they believed the same things, but they don't. And this is this is kind of cool. The Reformed Baptists 
and this is what I mean by basic. This is kind of something that undergirds their view of baptism and makes it so that they have a different view of baptism of who should be baptized because of their view of covenant. Like, I didn't know this. The Old Testament covenants, they believe, point forward to the covenant of grace. They're not part of it. Where the Presbyterian view is that all the Old Testament covenants kind of build on one another as part of the same covenant of grace. And the new covenant is kind of the culmination of that covenant of grace. The Reformed Baptist view says the Old Testament covenants point point to, they're typological. They point to the covenant of grace. And the new covenant is the covenant of grace inaugurated. And so, of course, the Reformed Baptists say <clears throat> there's been a radical, there's been a, there's, there's discontinuity. There's been a shift. I almost use the word radical change. Maybe it is a radical change. But like the new covenant has come and those old covenant covenants are done away with. They were fleshly and the new covenant is spiritual. So there's a disconnect. There's discontinuity between the old covenant people of God and how they were dealt with and the new covenant people of God and how they are dealt with. Where the Presbyterian view is that God's people were given covenants and they were part of the covenant of grace. They also had uh, aspects to them that were fleshly. So they were kind of, there was one way that they were fleshly and one way that they were spiritual. All the covenant, all the old covenants. And I don't know if I'm putting that, <clears throat> if you have a different understanding of what the Reformed Baptists believe, let me know. And I know Presbyterians disagree. Like the Mosaic Covenant, some Presbyterians say it was only a covenant of works. Some Presbyterians say it was a mixed covenant with kind of a two levels. One was physical and and typical, and one was kind of spiritual and actual. And then I think some probably say that it was all, it was all part of the covenant of grace. Uh, I would be in the middle. I would say that there were aspects of it that were typical or pointing forward to Christ. And there are aspects of it that are are actual. I, I use that term rather than spiritual. Actual meaning they apply to all God's people at all times. <clears throat> from all times. <clears throat> Excuse me. Anyway. There's a difference in how they view the covenant. So that discontinuity arises practically in terms of baptism and who they believe should be members of the church. The Baptists say only those who, as best as we can tell, are part of the church of God in heaven should be considered members of the church on earth where Presbyterians say that the church as it was in the old Testament, the people of God, the makeup of the people of God are, is still the same made up of households, even in the new Testament until the new creation. And so Presbyterians see continuity in terms of how how the people of God are made up on earth. <clears throat> and so you see, the Reformed Baptists, of course, would say only only those who profess faith credibly. So in other words, you ask them what they believe and you examine how they walk and then you baptize them. Those people should be considered members of the church only. Because, of course, now that we're in the New Covenant era, the church is only made up of believers. Where the Presbyterians would say, no, just as God marked his people out by, in terms of households in the Old Covenant era, so he does in the New Covenant era, because 
he never abrogated that in the new t- he never put so this is the thing i first of all i discovered it's tied to covenant but then as i engaged that i thought that the reformed baptists had it wrong they had advanced too far into the, the eschaton or the end of the age they they put place the church too close to the new creation i think and so i just i disagree with that i think that the old covenants are part of the new of the covenant of grace and the new covenant tops it off as it were kind of in Christ we see it all like it's revealed <clears throat> so like the old covenants kind of built on one another to reveal more and more what what Jesus would do in the covenant of grace for his people and so i thought uh, that like you read the new testament too it's not that i wasn't re- like think these are the this is the thing i really wrestled through is why does the new testament talk to the people of god using the exact same language from the old testament that god used talking to israel hebrews 3 and 4 references psalm 95 talking to the church saying don't don't fail to enter the rest as some of them did because of their unbelief warning the church using the same scripture that that god used then this was after this was later in israel's history of course psalm 95 so it was in the psalms so it was after the davidic you know it i don't know maybe some psalms were probably you know earlier but <clears throat> compiled later so as far as scripture goes this this was part of israel's scripture and part of it was used to talk to Israel, and it was used to talk to the church. Interesting. Uh, children in the church, Paul, and so referring to honor your father and mother, uh, Paul uses that in the church, in talking to the church at Ephesus. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Right? That's Paul is addressing children as members of the church. He addresses the letter to the Ephesians as to the church that is at Ephesus, or however he puts it. And uh, and then he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord? Huh, interesting. Uh, then you have a passage like 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7 that basically says when there's a believing parent, the children are holy. So in some way, because the parent is a believer, the children are set apart in some way. You have passages like Hebrews 6. It talks about the the um, and Hebrews ten, but talks about falling away from experiencing these things that you experience in the church. And who are these people that fall away? But those who were brought up in the church, who lived as members of the church, and then who abandoned that or rejected that. There's passages like First Corinthians ten. Paul Paul talks about the church. Going through the Red Sea, or the Israel, sorry, going through the Red Sea, right? And what does he say to them? He's talking to the Corinthians, and he says to the Corinthians, regarding using Israel, this example of Israel going through the Red Sea, he, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, talking to the Corinthians, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. 
For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not be desire evil as they did, etc. These things happened to them in verse 11. This is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come, etc. You know, he's talking to the Corinthians, using Israel as an example, calling what that Old Testament Israel, calling them our fathers to the Corinthians, who by and large I think were Gentiles, calling Israel our fathers? We're under the... Uh, you know, the... It's just interesting. There seems to be a lot of continuity in the way that the New Testament talks to the church <clears throat> uh, compared to the Old Testament. I mean, using the Old Testament way of talking about Israel. There's continuity there. Deal with it. It's interesting to look at. So that that's what I saw. I saw continuity instead of discontinuity, and so I disagreed. I did not flip on that view. I just kind of... I engaged with baptism again. I kind of came away thinking, huh, I'm pretty convinced that the Presbyterian view is biblical. And we did, we did decide to go to a different church. It was difficult to, you know, it's kind of a scary thing when a church can flip so easily. Of course, it's not an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. So it's not like they flipped on uh, justification or something like that. But, but when a church can so easily flip on such a, it's really it makes a practical difference in such a heated issue in some ways it's not an essential issue but people it is an emotional issue to people and it is a practical issue when you have children who were baptized and you believe it's not biblical to baptize them again uh, how would they be treated in the church now so we decided it'd probably be best to go to a presbyterian church whether that was right or wrong i don't know but that's what we did <clears throat> and i think it was beneficial and uh, anyway, so I saw continuity, and and uh, and there you go. So if you look in the New Testament, by the way, you see a lot of household baptisms too. This was a big deal. I forgot to mention this. When I was studying it again, the silence of the New Testament on the change in the membership of God's church is something that Baptists need to deal with. Like Baptists are always asking Paedo-Baptists, in my experience, where do you get this from? The Bible never says to baptize babies. Well, come on, guys. I hope I hope you realize you're. I mean, I hope you realize. I want you to realize something. I know you don't realize it. Maybe you do. Maybe I'm missing something. But why are you asking me that question? The Bible does say to mark children out, to mark households out, not just children. Mark households out as members of the church uh, based on the believing head of the household. <laughs> and in the New Testament, you even have household baptisms. Now, of course, Baptists would say all those who were baptized were believers because they had to be because that's it's not biblical to baptize children or whatever. Uh, right? Well, that's not a fair way to – a Presbyterian also could come to those passages and say, look – Households are baptized, so that means infants are baptized. See, both both of those, you can't do that. Neither side can do that because the Bible doesn't say one way or the other whether it was only believers who were baptized or whether it was also infants who were baptized. Uh, anyway, it's not fair to do that. So 
the Baptist has to recognize this. The Bible, the people of God have been given a sign to be applied to households of faith. So those households who were under the authority of a person who came to faith. So Israel, the church of God, the membership in the church of God in the Old Testament, the sign was circumcision. Households were considered members of the church of God in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, households are brought into the church of God, and there's a sign given, baptism, to mark people out as members of the church. What there isn't in the New Testament is anything that says, instead of regarding people as households, now let's regard them as individuals. So, like I said, the Reformed Baptist view is very robust in going back to covenant theology and saying, look, there's a difference here. We don't, we don't believe that these covenants are part of the new covenant or the covenant of grace. And we believe that only those, as far as we can tell, who are enrolled in, in heaven should be members of the church on earth. <clears throat> they get that from their view of the change in, in, covenant, in the covenant. But they don't get that from the Bible saying there's been a change in how we consider church membership. It seems like you should be able to look at the New Testament if there was a, such a radical change. It seems like there'd be some discussion of that. In fact, it, it, it seems like it'd be more clear when households were baptized, even that only the, those who believed and professed were baptized. You know, maybe I'm being unfair to the Reformed Baptists, but that's what it seems like to me is that the Baptists have some question marks too. You can't just ask the Presbyterian, well, where does the Bible say to baptize babies? Well, I could say that the Bible has always said to baptize babies, and uh, it doesn't have to say it just in the New Testament for it to be true. So the Reformed Baptist has to deal with that question of where does the Bible say to stop regarding children as members of the church? Um, that's that's a good question. I'm just It's a fair question, right? I'm just putting that out there. It's not a gotcha question. It's a fair question. And I just came down on one side of it, and Reformed Baptists come down on another side. So there you go. I think I've kind of explained it. Some questions I would have for Baptists are that question of where did the Bible change the makeup of the people of God from households to individuals? One question that's interesting, I'm sure there's answers out there, but why do Baptists treat their children the same way as Presbyterians? Other than marking them out as members of the church, they pretty much treat them as members of the church. And disciple them as members of the church. So just a question. And uh, if the covenants of the Old Testament were merely types pointing to the New Covenant, then why does the Bible in the New Testament use examples of Old Testament Israel's covenant unfaithfulness to warn the church, like 1 Corinthians 10 or Hebrews 3 and 4? So just some questions for my Baptist brethren from uh, Presbyterian and yeah, you you may have answers or you may not have answers, and even if you have answers or if you even if you don't have answers and then you find answers, you may come down still on the Baptist side, and that's fine. Go ahead and do that. I'm not putting this out here to change anyone's mind. I just wanted to clear some things up. And so to end, practically speaking, what does it look like, Presbyterian, the Presbyterian view of baptism, practically speaking? Well. Baptism is a sign of blessing or a sign of judgment to those who repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ 
It is a sign of blessing because it tells us about Jesus, the gospel, the work of Christ. The remission of sins, the joining of us in union with Christ by the Holy Spirit, regeneration, uh, being raised to walk in newness of life, and being part of God's people. Uh, These are things baptism tells us, it proclaims to us, that's connected to the word, to gospel, right? So it's a blessing to those who come to faith because it sanctifies them, it comforts them, and it's something they can look back upon as something God gave them as a mark to show them that these things are true physically, right? Marks them out. Um, But to those who never come to faith in Jesus, who reject Christ, it is a sign of judgment because they were brought up in the church. Like Hebrews 6 talks about this. You're brought up in the church. You partake in the holy, what does it say in Hebrews 6? Well, the language is pretty, pretty strong here. Let me just look it up. Yeah. Okay. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt, etc. Basically, and then it goes on. I mean, this this is great illustration. The Bible is great at this, right? God's good at this. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it. So children, or even people who profess faith uh, and lie, or who don't really believe, uh, who, who never really came to faith, they're like land that has rain that falls on it and produces... So the people that are hearing these things and experiencing these things should produce a crop that's useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated and, and it receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And then Paul, or I mean the writer to the Hebrews, talks about, you know, but don't worry, we we feel sure of better things regarding you. (laughs) You know, he comforts them too. But so it's not all doom and gloom. But it is a sign of judgment and a sign of blessing to those who come to faith in Christ, who are Jesus' people, it is blessing. And to those who reject Christ, it is a sign of judgment. They have been given a privileged position in the world, being given the gospel, partaking in the Holy Spirit, or whatever it says, sharing in the Holy Spirit, etc. They've been put into this position and then have fallen away. And so to them, it's like added judgment. Those who never were members of the church wouldn't have as much judgment as they meet for rejecting Christ. So anyway, practically speaking, there you go. How does it work if you have older children? Uh, well, if the children are ready to be under the discipline and, and, uh, and shepherding of the elders, uh, come out from under your um, discipline in terms of church membership and go under the discipline of the elders, well, then they should be baptized on their own as, as kind of their own head, right? Uh, and they're, because they're old enough to accept spiritual authority for their lives <clears throat> in terms of discipline. So they go under, like, instead of being disciplined by the parents for something that they did wrong, they would be disciplined by the church, okay? That's that's kind of, that's a good cutoff point for when, when does the change occur. So children that are under the headship by the parents, right, they should be baptized when the parents become members of the church. Even if they're, what, 16, 15, 17? Yeah. If we had slaves, would they be baptized? Yeah, if they're willing to be. If it's an unbelieving spouse, would they be baptized if they're... Yeah, if they're willing to be. 
I, th- I think that's my answer. I don't know if all churches practice the same thing, but that's my answer is the Bible teaches households are baptized because a believing head of a household uh, is is that person being a believer sanctifies the household in some way, sets them apart from the world in some way. First Corinthians 7. And uh, like Abraham was commanded, all those under his headship or authority were to be baptized, marked out as members of the church of God. And and if they, uh, yeah, etc. Practically speaking, there you go. There's some weird questions that are out there. Like I don't have any, I don't, like if I had a slave that was 30 years old and didn't want to be baptized into the church, right? I don't know what it, like, how do you even answer that question? We don't have slaves. I don't know what it, I don't know how that works. Etc. Those are things we'd have to deal with, but practically speaking, hypothetically, that could be the case. Just to answer the questions that come up sometimes, I guess um, I'm starting to ramble. You know, I, I better end the podcast. Uh, what does it look like? Well, when you become so, when you become members of a church, even if you have children that are nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, whatever, if they're still under your head authority, headship. If they're still under their parents' authority, right, they should be baptized as members of the church together with the parents. But they're not considered. Uh, they're not considered full members. You know, the, the Baptists and the Presbyterians still practice something in church membership. This, like I said, the Presbyterians and Baptists are the same in terms of believers' baptism. It's just like Presbyterians add children into the equation. So there's a mixed multitude in a Presbyterian church. You have those who have not professed faith and you have those who have professed faith. So there's a difference in membership where in the Reformed Baptist church, all members are the same, only they're all the same, right? So practically speaking in the Presbyterian church, yeah, you have two levels. You have those those who are professors of faith confessing, confessing members and you have those who are not yet confessing members, those who have not decided to Follow Jesus, to quote a song, uh, right? So those people who have not professed faith, who are members of the church, should be engaged in dis- discipline, discipleship, bringing them along in the faith and encouraging them to come to faith, to make profession of faith. To you, you should tell them about Jesus, give them the gospel, and encourage them to embrace Him in their own right, on their own. So practically speaking, again, Presbyterians don't assume or shouldn't assume that their children rely upon the faith of the parents for salvation. That's not biblical. Children are still, in Presbyterian churches, are still expected to come, are still encouraged to come to faith in Jesus, to profess faith in Jesus, to embrace him in their own right. Okay, So practically speaking, like Reformed Baptists would do the same thing for their children. It's just they wouldn't do it to members of the church, they would do it to their children. Their children are not members of the church in Reformed Baptism, uh, Baptist view. <clears throat> and they're encouraged to become members of the church where Presbyterians say, hey, you are a member of the church. Of the church. You, you need, at some point in your life, you're going to have to wrestle with this and make a decision whether you're going to continue following Jesus in the church or if you're going to reject him. But don't don't take this lightly. So anyway, I don't know. 
yeah, rambling. Practical issues are interesting, and I think uh, that's where a lot of people are confused about how that works, and hopefully that little bit of ramble was helpful. I'm sure it wasn't. I'm going to get out of here. It's early. Maybe I'll throw this. I don't know when I'll release this. Um, I'll have to edit it and stuff, and it's terrible. Oh, but let me – It. I mean it gives you an insight into how my brain works when I don't have children and a wife around to – I mean, I like having my wife and kids around. So when I get bored, I just like I just ramble. I got I got to do something, right? So there you go. This is this is Josh. What do you call it? Un uh, what's the un uh, unplugged? I don't know. Uh, I'm coming unhinged, maybe. Yeah, I don't know what to say. This is who I am. Uh, it's unmasked. You know, when you do a podcast, here's a ramble, right? It okay. I'm done talking about baptism. I hope that was helpful. Feedback, podcast at practicallytheologians.org. If you want to send me an email, do it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, well, here you go. You know, doing a podcast, I like to tell my children, and I think it's true, and this is why I like to tell my children and my wife and myself this. Everything you see on a screen is fake. Okay? Now, listen. You might say, no, no, it's not. No, it's real. Like, nah, nah, it's not really. It's not really real. Like, it's not what you would see in real life. It's it's fake. First of all, it's just a it's just a representation of the real thing. It's not really the real thing. It's like a painting isn't the mountain. A painting of a mountain isn't the mountain. It's a representation of the mountain. So it might represent something that's real, but it's not real. It's fake. Second, though, I mean, my point has to do with you produce things. Like you, when you take a picture of your family, you want them all to be smart. You don't just take a picture of your family. Right? I mean, you might you do take candid shots, right? That's what we call them, candid shots. But by and large, if you put a picture on your wall, you're not going to put a candid shot most of the time on the wall unless it's the perfect time. Like you're not actually taking a picture of the moment of the – of the person, you're taking a, a snapshot in a, a moment of the time. A, like you're just selecting a small sliver of what, who the person, what the person looks like, what they're doing, right? So if they happen to look, if they happen to smile and you like the look of the person, you put, you take a picture and you put it up on your wall and you say, this is who this person is. No, you know what? Maybe that was the only time in their life they ever smiled and you just happened to catch them at the right moment. But the person was a sourpuss, no fun to be around. And yet the picture represents them as this peaceful, gentle-looking spirit that you want to hang out with all the time. Like, look at old grandpa on the wall smiling down at us. Well, what if he was a complete uh, uh, rude humbug, right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Pictures... Videos, they're fake. Well, podcasts are also, in a lot of ways, fake. And I I think this episode is, in a lot of ways, I mean, what I'm doing right here just talking is kind of almost me talking to myself in some ways. So <laughs> so that's why I'm kind of a rambler. Uh, this is who I This is who I am, and that's why people don't like to talk to me or do like to talk to me. I don't know. I, I get the sense that I need to just shut my mouth more often than I need to open it. I'll put it that way. But anyway, so I just wanted to say that I, I also think podcasting is similar to pictures. You're getting a uh, produced idea of who the person is and what they think. 
you don't like if you want to really know who I am and what I think, talk to me in real life and examine how I live my life. That's that's what we should do with one another. So have people over for dinner for crying out loud. Hey, do not replace and then, oh man, this is a pet peeve. Do not replace going to church and hearing preaching with watching videos or listening to sermons online. Preaching cannot be done other than in person. That's a that's a big deal. I really believe this is true. The Bible teaches that preaching is to be done in person. Romans 10 and 11, right? Paul, somewhere in there. Paul talks about the how beautiful are the, well, the Old Testament even talks about this. Paul's quoting the Old Testament. How beautiful are the feet of those who are clad in the gospel of peace or something like that. Who will, how will they, how will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless there's a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? It's a physical thing. Jesus came in the flesh and he gave us ministers who are in the flesh they 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 are embodied right jesus gives us other members in the church he gives us elders and deacons he gives gifts to his church who are embodied persons who are fallible persons who who bring his word to the church he doesn't give us he he doesn't he gives us the lord's supper he gives us bread and wine his body and blood shed for us <clears throat> like it's to be it's to be impersoned. This church thing is to be done in the body. You can't listen to sermons by Spurgeon if there were any recordings, and you can't say that that's listening to preaching. That's what I'm getting around to. I think that the Bible teaches preaching is only preaching when it's in person. There you go. That's a pet peeve of mine. So when you listen to this podcast, don't let it replace talking with people who are part members of your church go physically face to face have them over for dinner shake their hand say hi live live alongside them engage with them don't just engage in this virtual realm of podcasting and facebook and all that all that jazz i know i put podcasts out there i sometimes question whether podcasting is is appropriate but i don't know the answer to that and i think it's probably appropriate but i do I think it's also appropriate to warn people against replacing interaction with people around them with podcasts. It saddens me. It saddens me that during the during the COVID hullabaloo, which I think was a complete propaganda fest, that I think it's shameful that churches shut down uh, after. Maybe for a week or two if you were really concerned about a sickness. But after that, I mean, how could you keep people away from preaching and the sacraments and fellowship? Even if there's sickness going around, we need that. Did God really, was God unwise in telling the church to do these things when it would kill them? Right? If, if that would really kill everyone in the church, is God not able to protect people from death in the church? Like why... And then it was sad because then, oh man, I'm rambling. Here we go. It was sad though because it it made churches start to put their worship services on Zoom or whatever, video, what? And then people replaced going to church with trying to worship God this way in their living room in their underwear or pajamas or whatever. I mean, come on. Now, now churches are still putting their services online. As if you could put your service online. You can't put your service online. By the way, it's not a worship service if it's online. It's not. It's a recording. It's a rep- Like I said, it's fake. 
it's a representation of something that may or may not have happened. You, you know, it could all just be fake. It could be completely produced. But anyway, most of the time it probably really happened. But I'm just saying, it's not the real thing. You've got to go to church. You've got to hear real preaching, physical guys preaching, fallible guys. You know, you got to hear it and you got to take it in as a gift. Even if they say things you disagree with, you take it in as a gift. It's God's. Jesus gave you preaching. Go listen to it. Oh, how'd I get off on this rant? Because I was talking about podcasting. And yeah, like I said, sometimes I struggle. But I think if I warn you against replacing real interaction with uh, listening to podcasts, maybe that's fulfilling a responsibility. Really what it is, is it's still early and uh, I got nothing better to do. I do miss my wife and kids. They keep me a little bit sane, maybe. What would I do without them? I hope they listen to this, but I doubt they will, but then they'll be flattered. Okay, peace out. I got to get out of here because you guys are going to think I'm insane. Uh, Hope it was helpful. Adios. Adios.